Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. All journeys have secret destinations of which the traveler is unaware. So that's a quote from Martin Buber, who is a Jewish-Austrian philosopher. So all of us are in the middle of some journey now, on our retreat. And just about in the middle, about uh, halfway through now. This is about the time in which you may have uh, lost track of the shore that you left and Maybe it's hard to imagine what the next shore is going to be like. So in the middle of the journey, things can feel a little uh, strange, uneasy, uh, sometimes beautiful, sometimes confusing. I sat a retreat myself recently at a retreat center that I had never been to before or had never sat a retreat at. And I remember right about in the middle of the retreat, I suddenly realized like, it's as if I've lived here all my life. You know, like I can't actually remember what it was like when I didn't line up for food or uh, go through the dining hall line. It's kind of like the little yogi uh, you know, meditator room that I had was my home for keeps. And these people I had found around me, you know, I took birth in this realm. They were like the people I always have lived with and... Uh, So in this place, in the middle of the journey, one thing that is helpful to keep in mind is that uh, your own mind will probably try to tell you some story, to give you some orientation in the middle of the sea, like what's going on. And it could be like, oh, this is a terrible retreat, like the worst ever. Uh, Take that with a grain of salt. Uh, This is a great retreat. It's only going to get better and better for me. Everything's going to be pleasant. Also take that with a grain of salt. I'm the worst one here. I'm the only one who's not getting it. Uh, It's supposed to be a metta retreat and I'm struggling with so much difficult stuff. Take that one with a grain of salt. Comparing. I did that metta retreat two years ago and then I remember there was that one period that was so blissful. Let me try to recreate that. I think I had the tan cushion and the orange cushion. (laughs) I think I was sitting facing this wall. It was about 2.30 when it started. I think I had half a banana. And, uh, so beware, the comparing mind. Right? The, we call this sometimes the uh, dragging around the corpses of past retreats and comparing. Right? So each journey is its own journey. And we're actually venturing into uh, areas that we've never been to before. So it's understandable that the mind will try to get a handle on it and try to make a story of it, the story of me, the story of the retreat, the story of everyone else. But just know, like, this is where you are right now, is in this place of unknowns. Uh, Allow yourself to recognize what's happening, to practice as steadily as you can. But really try to let go any of those judgments about how well it's going or how good a meditator you are or any of that stuff. You know, the the landscape is vast here. 
Like we really don't know what's going on. In case you don't believe me, here's a quote from the Buddha. Uh, in, a, in whatever way that we conceive, the fact is ever other than that. <laughs> so yeah, don't believe your mind. Whatever it thinks of and is sure this is exactly how it is, then yeah, just take it with a grain of salt, I'll say. So I thought I'd share some uh, perspective on what we're up to at this point too, you know, in case the doubts have been coming up or trying to understand this in the field of uh, Dhamma, Dhamma practice. And I know many of you have been here also on uh, insight meditation retreats, on Vipassana retreats. And I've uh, spoken to some people who sometimes feel like, oh, can I just take a break from this metta and just go back to uh, the ease of mindfulness? Uh, Again, things are other than you conceive, because you probably forget that a big part of insight retreats is dukkha, right? (laughs) Is familiarizing yourself in a very intimate way with suffering. So (laughs) when you think of taking a break in that way, you know, it's good to to know that. So our practice here of, of metta is well within the scope of what the Buddha taught as the teachings of liberation. So this is part of the Dhamma is part of the truth of the way things are. It's part of understanding nature, like how things work. And this is really the enterprise of the meditation practice is uh, helping us to become more wise to the truth of the way things are, you know, understanding causality. So if you understand causality and if your heart and mind become wise, then you can live more in accordance with the truth of the way things are. So you get to miss a lot of friction, of suffering. You get to miss a lot of uh, the wrong turns that we take otherwise. So on the way up here, uh, several days ago, I had stopped somewhere and got a, a drink that they gave to me in a plastic cup with a lid on top. And I finished the drink on the way up here. And then I thought, like, oh, I'll leave the cup in my car, maybe on the way back down. It's like sometimes a lot of traffic going to San Francisco. I'll fill it up with some uh, liquid and take it back down. So meanwhile, several days went by. And then I went to my car uh, yesterday. And out was this came this misshapen plastic melted thing. So the, the lid of the cup had actually become a completely flat uh, clear disc and the bottom of the cup had become kind of like this modern art like convoluted little sculpture with a little bit of liquid in the bottom you know so uh i did not see that coming (laughs) when i thought i would save this cup you know and but it was just the heat of the day every day it's been hot right in the car it's hot i don't have one of those like windshield protector things so it would heat up at the day melt and then at night apparently it would cool and congeal and then do that again congeal do that again congeal so i didn't understand nature (laughs) i didn't understand it's not a good idea to keep a plastic cup in your car when it gets to the kind of heat you get in marin maybe in san francisco you can get away with that but not in marin so similarly there's ways in which you know we don't understand how the mind works how the heart works And the Buddha said very poignantly, you know, all beings wish to be happy. You know, you could say like all people wish to be happy, but really 
that he included all animals, all creatures, uh, all beings in every realm, those we know, those we don't know. This is one thing we have in common is that we all wish to be happy. So we want to find safety. We like to find refuge. You know, this is something that is shared across all different age groups and nationalities and uh, species. But the trouble, as he said, we don't know how to get there. You know, we don't know what it takes to be happy. And so then we spend most of our life kind of machinating in different ways, as best we know how, to try to create the conditions for happiness. But unfortunately, most of the time, we're actually on the wrong track. So we're doing our best with our unawakened minds. And, you know, we're trying to follow patterns of stuff that we're told will make us happy and stuff we see other people doing that looks like maybe it makes them happy or... uh, But a lot of the times it doesn't seem to work. So maybe I'll make a lot of money, as much money as possible, could be happy. Maybe I'll try and get a perfect relationship together and then I could be happy. Or I'll find the best job, perfect job. I'll just line up pleasant experiences in my life. That'll make me happy. So the trouble is that none of this really is stable. None of this actually lasts in any enduring way such that we can find refuge in any experience and any kind of security of the material world uh, in any relationship in anything stock market goes up and down Uh, you marry someone and immediately they start to change as do you Uh, jobs change you get a job and then the boss changes or the circumstances of the industry the field changes Even pleasant experiences, you try to repeat that great vacation you took last year and you go back and everything is different somehow. So this is part of the truth of the way things are is that there is this inherent instability in experiential reality in the world and yet we keep seeking this happiness, this stability, this uh, refuge in the world of changing circumstances. So it's very poignant, you know, to recognize this in ourselves and others. When I was uh, on this uh, retreat that I mentioned, uh, it was a much simpler, sort of more stark retreat center than uh, Spirit Rock is. So they served uh, like exactly the same breakfast every day, like very simple breakfast. No variation on grain like you get here. It was just like, you know, oatmeal mush sort of thing. Which was actually fine, you know, as nutritious and everything. But after about three or four days of this, uh, I saw someone going into a fridge and pulling out a hard-boiled egg. And suddenly the thought occurred to me, like, tomorrow I'll have an egg. (laughs) And it was like such an exciting uh, thought. (laughs) And it was so funny. I could see this thought arise and I could see how humorous is like, oh, I'm so excited about a cold, hard-boiled egg, you know? <laughs> like I've had better things than the cold, hard-boiled egg, you know? So I was halfway through the line, so I continued, you know, through the line, maybe out of uh, not looking so greedy to abandon my mush bowl to get the egg. But I, then periodically during the day, the thought would come up like, tomorrow I'll have an egg, you know? <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, I just had a laugh about this. I reported this to my teacher, and I was like, why, why am I so excited about this uh, egg? Like, I've had so many eggs. I don't even actually like cold, hard-boiled eggs, you know? <laughs> and uh, he was like, well, you know, if they so- served hard-boiled eggs every day, if you saw someone getting oatmeal, it would be like, tomorrow I'm having oatmeal, you know? <laughs> like, the mind is always seeking, you know, something else that would be uh, exciting. Like, maybe this thing will be satisfying. Like, maybe this sense experience will be, will do it for me, you know. So it's good to, you know, hold that with a sense of humor, but there also is some uh, sort of tenderness with which it's like, oh, the mind is, there's something unsatisfactory here. And it's continually seeking, like, what is, what's it going to be? Like, a better place to do the walking meditation or, you know, just the right, uh, like, outfit for the day to manage the cool and heat or comfort or just the right configuration of cushions, you know, like that's what's going to make me happy. And, uh, you know, cold hard-boiled egg, like, yes, you know. (laughs) And then I actually did, in fact, allow myself to have the cold hard-boiled egg the next day. Uh, And then, you know, the spell was broken, right? (laughs) Like, I wasn't craving it anymore. It was like done and uh, the drama was finished. And then, but until, you know, that kind of like searching mechanism picks up on something else. Right? So it's never satisfied, you know. But even in that lack of satisfaction, in that search, there's something that uh, I think we can learn from it. It's like this yearning for wholeness, you know, some yearning for completion, a yearning for this sense of satisfaction and well-being that we erroneously attribute to hard-boiled eggs and piles of cushions and walking places, but... Actually, the place to look for it is within. So that's the practice that we're doing here is kind of like the cut to the chase practice of going directly to the heart, you know, the place where happiness or dissatisfaction arises. And why not just work there? You know, why not look there? Why not train there? Why not practice there? Stop chasing hard-boiled eggs and colored cushions and everything else. So what we're doing is uh, training the heart and mind in a wise way uh, with a stability of mind. So collecting the attention, uh, developing samadhi, developing concentration, and then applying that to cultivating very wholesome state of goodwill of this metta. So this is a very wholesome thing to do. The Buddha talked about his own discoveries in his practice. So he spent some time experimenting with, you know, what's the way to happiness, well-being? What are the causes of suffering? And among what he discovered in his own experiments in this way is, uh, he did one, one practice where he was like, what if I look at all of the things that arise that seem to be like generosity, uh, metta, Uh, compassion, and see when this arises, what seems to be the effect on me and what's the effect on others. And then let's look at the other ones that arise like anger, ill will, uh, fear, hatred. Let's notice like, okay, what's the effect on my own mind when that arises? And then what's the effect on others? And here he came up with like, oh, there's these states of heart and mind that are actually wholesome and that lead to a sense of well-being for myself and others. And then there are these other states of heart and mind that are unhelpful, unskillful. 
So they're agitating of the mind in the moment. And then when I act from them, I do things that I regret. It causes pain and suffering for others. And then furthermore from this experiment, he discovered, and this is very important and an essential part of our practice, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, this will become the inclination of their mind. So whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, this will become the inclination of your mind. So this is very simple but very profound. And there's a way in which all beings are actually in some kind of mental training, whether they know it or not. So someone who is uh, cut off in traffic and then gives someone the finger and curses at them, they are in training cultivating the states of uh, aggression or hatred. Someone who sees someone drop something, uh, picks it up with a sense of compassion, kindness, and gives it back to the other person. Yeah, they're cultivating a sense of goodwill, kindness, compassion. And the more that you hang out in the arena of the skillful, wholesome, such as metta, the more that becomes the natural inclination of your mind. The more you hang out in the unskillful, uh, painful states, the more that becomes the inclination of your mind. So sometimes you can see this in uh, places where there are uh, like collection of um, elderly folks who may not at the moment have the ability to cultivate their mind uh, so clearly anymore. Uh, My grandma was in a place that uh, when she was in her 90s, um, there were a lot of uh, older people there and most of them weren't so tuned into like specifics of you know what year it was or what was happening in the news or even who specific people were who were coming to visit them. But you could see that some people just were kind of uh, cranky about everything and everyone, right? And some people were vague but actually uh, pleasant and happy, you know, towards everything and everyone. And it was, uh, for me, like very humbling and also motivating to notice that, you know, those who have the ability to cultivate, to influence the inclination of their mind. It's, it's good to do that. It's good to do that when you can. So that's one reason why what we're doing here, this period of time, this nine days, is so beautiful and uh, worthwhile. So I started my own uh, Dharma practice um, when I was in college. And I remember going on my first metta retreat. I'd done some vipassana retreats and they have some periods of metta in them. And so I was trying to explain to a friend of mine from college what I was about to go do. So I was like, you know, basically we're going to sit there and uh, wish well for other people. And she was like, and what else? You know, I was like, well, we're going to do that when we're sitting down, and then we're going to do it when we're walking. <laughs> and she's like, and what else? You know, well, then uh, also you eat, but then while you're eating, you're also uh, trying to wish well for yourself, for other people. Right? And she just started laughing. And uh, she was like, wow, that's so crazy, but that's so beautiful. Like, people are really going to do this? How many people will do this? And I was like, 
I think about 100 people will come and do this together. And she was like, for a week you're going to do this? Like, yes, yes, that's what we're going to do. And she continued to laugh. It was, I remember this. She was so uh, inspired and surprised that there would be 100 people who would want to do this. You know? And I'll say that like, actually some years later, she herself took up meditation and uh, since then has done metta retreats herself. But it was such a like, delightful, delightful and ridiculous thing to think of that that's what people were spending their time doing. So I did about maybe 10 years of vipassana practice before I turned in earnest to metta. And it's been a very important part of my own uh, spiritual path, cultivation of the heart and mind. And then I spent about five years with metta as a main practice. So main practice means I did it in my daily life. Uh, I did it as my morning and evening sitting practice. I did it as a daily life practice when I was riding the bus or train or waiting in line places. And then when I had the opportunity to go on retreats, uh, short retreats or longer retreats, and I did several one-month retreats and a three-month retreat in that period, also uh, did metta the whole time. And I found it very transformative. One of the things that had inspired me before I uh, even started with meditation practice was uh, I was a studying comparative religion in college. I came across uh, this book in one course called The Way of a Pilgrim that some of you may be familiar with. And it's the account of a Russian mystic uh, pilgrim who in the 19th century was um, inspired by some words in the Bible that said, uh, pray without ceasing. And somehow this really struck him, pray without ceasing. And it also really struck me. So he went about on this pilgrimage to find out what that actually meant. So he went to many different churches and monasteries. And finally, he found uh, what they call staret, like an elder, a spiritual teacher uh, who could instruct him in this. And this teacher gave him a very simple prayer that he was to repeat uh, constantly. So the prayer was a, a Christian prayer called the Jesus Prayer. And it's, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. So he was supposed to do that then uh, constantly, like all the time, steadily, uh, as his practice. And this book details his spiritual development uh, and his struggles with this practice and then the effect that his practice has also on the people that he encounters uh, as he goes around as a pilgrim. So this idea of praying without ceasing uh, is really translated here to practice with continuity. And this is a, a beautiful and you know, unusual aspect of what we're doing here that made my friend laugh with delight. You know. So it is actually this cultivation of metta as best you can with as much continuity as possible uh, during all of your waking time. Because otherwise your mind's going to be up to something or other. <laughs> so you might as well at least try to give it something sort of uh, useful to do. <laughs> and you do your best. You, know, you just do your best with this. So don't worry about how imperfect it comes up or uh, how often you seem to fall into other states or even if it just seems like a giant, giant struggle, right, all the time. 
So I told you in the beginning also about my um, journey up here when I got to stop in a car wash. Uh, so continue the story of my car wash. Um, so it was one of those car washes, you drive the car into the room and then um, before that actually you got to select what kind of wash you wanted. And because it's America, they were like, it's the lowest one was like super wash and then it was like super duper wash and then <laughs> premium wash and then like super premium wash, you know, and it was like seven bucks, eight bucks, 10, 12, something, right? And then each one had different, slightly different thing. Like one of them, it added uh, under car washing, one of them added like wax, one added something else, you know. So you select your thing and then you go in and then uh, the car stays stationary in this room and then the brushes kind of move back and forth and then various things get sprayed onto the car and then washed off the car and, you know, it was kind of fun to be in this uh, thing. So, you know, I was, remember I was mentioning on the first day, in some ways this is kind of like what you get on the cushion and then uh, all this stuff like starts up, you know. So we were at that time just doing resting and loving awareness and then you know, whatever it is that starts up from your internal heart car wash, right? <laughs> uh, extreme power washing or <laughs> soaping or gentle waxing or whatever, you know, is going on. And I remember thinking like, yeah, that, that metaphor kind of works, except we don't feel like we pushed the buttons, you know, before we got onto the cushion. Like we didn't actually choose. It didn't seem like we chose Right? Like certainly you didn't choose as you're entering the door. There was no console that was like, uh, you know, meta for two minutes, fall asleep for five minutes, right? <laughs> With or without snoring, then uh, <laughs> uh, states of aversion, uh, restlessness, a little more meta, you know, right? Like you didn't cue it up like that. Like it all just seemed to unfold. And yet, actually, according to this, you know, that which we frequently think and ponder upon that will become the inclination of your mind in some ways we did there were some points in the past in the cultivation of our mind right some some point in the past at various points in which we have already pushed the buttons so now we're doing it again you know and every time we take some intention uh, to establish a heart of goodwill we are in some ways like pushing more buttons for the future, you know. What will be more likely to come up in the next uh, period of uh, car wash, yeah. Or a different metaphor, shift off the car wash, is like, uh, you know, when you sit on your cushion, I often think sometimes when we go and sit on the cushion or the chair in the meditation hall, it's like a cooker, you know. And so your job is to, is to sit there and allow yourself to get cooked, so the way that you do that is just doing your best each time, plant a phrase, take the intention, that's it. That's all you got to do. Sit there, do that. Sit there, do that. Then walking practice, similarly, you could be like the pilgrim. You know, this pilgrim who's praying without ceasing, just take some steps, say a phrase, cultivate the intention. That's all you got to do, just that. You know, and then allow the Dhamma to cook you. Like allow the practice, allow our container, allow the beauty of the sangha here. So here's another quote from the Buddha. No other thing do I know on account of which arisen ill will is abandoned and unarisen ill will does not arise so much as the liberation of the heart by metta. 
So no other thing do I know on account of which ill will is abandoned and unarisen ill will does not arise as the liberation of the heart by metta. For one who attends properly to the liberation of the heart by metta, unarisen ill will does not arise and arisen ill will is abandoned. So we've been talking about this purification and this ill will that's arising, really just consider this part of the process. You know, this is like the boiling of the pot on the stove. You know, it's, the purification is happening. It's, it's coming. And there's a way in which as we also start to tune into uh, what does it feel like when there's metta and what does it feel like when there is ill will or anger or revenge or any other uh, unskillful state, Right. We're actually learning in that. You know, our system is kind of truing up to wholesome state versus unwholesome state. And it's almost like getting used to drinking like clean water, you know, or, or breathing clean air. You know, we're learning, our, our system is learning like what that feels like, what that feels like to be in state of metta, to be in a, a wholesome place. And then sooner and sooner you start to notice when you're caught in something. Like it becomes more clear because you've had some taste of metta what it's like when something that's not metta arises. So this is all very helpful. You know, it's all very helpful learning, even though some of it is sort of painful too. So to go back to what your expectations might be of retreat, notice if you have in the back of your mind some idea that what's supposed to happen is you Start, maybe you'll be like, okay, I'll start small, but then the metta will start to grow until it's a full blast canon of metta coming from the heart. And then once I get to that, it will remain like that for the next uh, five days of the retreat. And that will be a successful retreat. So if you ever have some experience of the metta flowing freely, you're like, now I got it, now it's going to stay. And then because of impermanence, (laughs) conditions changing then, something else happens. In fact, sometimes when you've had the most seemingly pure experience of metta, right after that launches something like exactly the opposite. So then you could get very disappointed, like, oh no, what happened? How did that happen? I've, I've fallen off. It was going so well. And, you know. So just be very patient, very patient with this process. These are the struggles that are common for spiritual practitioners in this journey for thousands of years. So to place this within the uh, Buddhist teachings more a little bit, there's something called the Eightfold Path many of you are familiar with. Uh, Eightfold Path is uh, kind of the prescription for liberation. It's divided into three categories. So one aspect is about cultivating integrity, or sila. We take the precepts, uh, beginning of the retreat, is uh, related to that. One aspect is about mental development, uh, meditation, cultivation of the mind, heart. And one aspect is about wisdom, or insight. So within the integrity area, we have uh, wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. So metta is there in uh, speech, right speech. It's there in the actions that we're encouraged to take. So taking actions that stem from an understanding about uh, goodwill for all beings. And then even in one's livelihood, the recommendation is to 
uh, engage in work that doesn't harm others. So that might have as its basis something uh, beneficial. In the mental development area, the areas that it's most focused with is the concentration area. So this is a mental training that's also collecting our usually very scattered attention, collecting it, collecting it, and then applying it to something wholesome, metta, cultivating metta. It's also in the area of wise effort. So wise effort is described by Buddha's four aspects. So one is to be aware when there is something unwholesome that has arisen. And if something unwholesome has arisen, to try to let go of that. And then to try to understand what are the conditions that lead to the arising of unwholesome states and to try to avoid those conditions. Then to try to know when something wholesome has arisen, like metta, and to try to continue that and try to understand what are the conditions that lead to the arising of wholesome states, and then to try to cultivate those conditions. So that's what we are very dedicatedly doing here uh, during this entire period. To cultivate wholesome states and then uh, creating the conditions for that to be the case in a beautiful way. And then also related to wise intention. So wise intention includes uh, cultivating intentions of harmlessness. So goodwill, you could say. Uh, Cultivating intentions of renunciation as opposed to greed. And cultivating intentions that are like compassion. So kindness, compassion, renunciation. So an interesting aspect of this practice, and we're about you know, kind of halfway through the different categories of beings, is that we're playing with observing the way in which our heart relates to the world. So we started off with some being who is easy, right? And you may have heard uh, us say this word benefactor, which we were talking about is kind of an ancient, unusual word, benefactor. Like you might only hear it sometimes in relationship to um, like a patron of the arts or something. Like a benefactor has supported this painter or sculptor to do their work or something like that. Uh, but really it could be considered also like mentor. You know, someone who has had a beneficial attitude towards supporting us in some way. And maybe it's not so like, culturally American to think in this way, like this person is benefactor. Right? My family's from uh, Sri Lanka and I spent some time there um, in growing up in some summers. And then when I finished college, I went back there and uh, did practice in monasteries. And I also did some uh, teaching in a village there. And there's such a respect for teachers there. Uh, so I was teaching English to these kids in this uh, pretty poor village. And uh, I remember at one point this little boy came and he uh, had seemingly attached himself to my uh, foot. And I was kind of trying to like shake him off. And then someone told me like, oh, he wants you to touch his head. Like he's actually paying respect to you as the teacher. You know? 
And I was like, wow, that does not happen in America, right? <laughs> like, okay, you know, he wants my blessing. Like, that's so beautiful, you know. And he was very persistent, too. He wasn't being shaken off. He wanted me. I waited there till I gave the blessing like that. Um, but there's a sense of like, oh, yeah, uh, our lives are supported by so many people. And if we reflect on this in some way, you know, even if you didn't grow up with this idea of benefactors or, uh, you know, teachers as people to respect in that way or, uh, you know, we all were babies at some point, right? And the fact that we made it to adulthood says that somebody helped us along the way (laughs) because babies are pretty helpless, right? So somebody had to feed you. uh, Somebody had to teach you just about everything you know, you know, how to go to the bathroom, messy thing to teach another human being, right? So I'm going to teach you how to tie your shoes. Walk, you kind of pick it up on your own, but ride a bicycle, you do not. <laughs> right? How to drive, how to read, how to do math. For many of us, if you took up some career, you had mentors in that career. Certainly for all of us here, practicing meditation, we had some guides along the way. You know. And some of those guides could have been like, you randomly picked up a book in the bookstore and read it and were inspired and then ended up here. Or you met someone even on a train uh, talked to you about meditation and gave you some guidance and you ended up in a retreat. Or personal teachers, you know, who have really given you a lot of guidance along the way. And then informal teachers, you know, maybe grandparents or uh, friends, older siblings, even as in that story that Sally told, like random one-time encounters that really touched your heart, you know, that helped show you something about love, about wisdom, about possibilities. So once we actually tune into that, you know, allows our, allow our heart to be touched with gratitude, we can feel like oh, we're all being held in this web of, can we say, benefaction? <laughs> you know, like there's so many benefactors of our lives. And then likewise, you yourself have probably been a benefactor for so many people. You know, maybe in ways that you dismiss or don't think about because nobody gave you a, like, world's best benefactor mug or something like that, you know. But you also probably have taught so many people things. You have probably mentored people in your life. Even if it's something like learning to be a good friend, you know. So I remember someone who was a friend of mine in my 20s who really taught me what it was like to be a good friend, to be a loyal friend. And I have such appreciation for that. It wasn't a role that she had to apply for or, you know, it wasn't a formal thing, but really I learned so much from her what it was to be a good friend and it's benefited me and actually everyone I've encountered since then. So then we shift to the category of friend now. So a friend, someone who uh, sometimes is, you can pick a good friend, but sometimes friends are a little bit more of a mixed bag, you know. So sometimes friends, you like them, you like hanging out with them, but yeah, there's a few things that eh, you don't love about them or could do without. Or there was a time they spilled something on that sweater that they borrowed of yours or didn't return this thing or they sometimes get whiny. You know. So here we get the next challenge for metta. 
you know, can we have a sense of goodwill uh, towards even imperfection in other beings? So now it gets interesting. Not just the one who's only totally helped me, but now, okay, can I still maintain a heart of goodwill, of kindness, of love? And it's good to keep in mind also, there's all different gradients of metta. So at the very lowest level, you might say like non-aversion, right? Non-aversion. So if that's all you got, then that's good. You know, it's better than aversion. So. And then maybe it's kind of low-grade, low-grade goodwill, you could say, low-grade kindness, you know. Okay, then maybe you know, kindness or maybe goodwill there, then friendliness, a bit more active, a little more tail-wagging involved in that, you know. Uh, then loving-kindness, right? And then uh, one of my favorite translations, the force of unstoppable friendliness, right? And then we have like uh, unconditional love right up there. So wherever it is along that gradient that it seems to fall, uh, that's okay. Like we're kind of learning about this whole spectrum like that. And then we're applying it to this whole spectrum of beings. So the one who seems to have treated us really well, the one who's a mixed bag. Then we're going to move on to the neutral, someone we don't know really. Uh, And then of course we're going to move on to someone who's actually been difficult for us. And there's a way in which we think that all of this is a description of reality, these categories, but you could reflect in which, in some ways, like this whole uh, like mandala of different circles, you know, myself being somewhere there, and then neutral one, friend, uh, benefactor, enemy, you know. It's kind of like this mandala or this sort of pattern that like has just been lifted and placed down on every different circumstance of your life. So probably when you first went to school, you may remember this, may not, like in grade one, you had like your little best friend, you had the kid who you didn't like, you had the kids you didn't really pay that much attention to, right? Uh, Maybe you had someone who you considered like a mentor, maybe the teacher was, maybe someone else. Then you go to the next grade, it's like this whole grid gets like repopulated, right? You move to a new school, I think it's a whole new thing, but actually, boom, 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 benefactor, friend, enemy, neutral person, right? Uh, You go to uh, a new neighborhood, boom, 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 right? Like that. You come on a retreat, right? So already on the retreat. You didn't know these people before, but they've populated very quickly all these different rings, right? The people you like, people you think are difficult, people you don't pay attention to. Probably even among the teachers, just, you know, there are only seven of us, but it's enough to fit in the rings, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> the ones who, like, you really like and con- connect with, I like how they talk, and, you know, the ones, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> it happens like that, and we think, like, oh, this is reality, but look how it's just the mind, like, replaying this pattern over and over. And we, th- we think freedom and liberation is going to be when somehow we land in some situation in which everyone's in the good ring, right? No one's in the bad ring. But start to notice how, oh, it's just the mind that's doing this over and over again. You know, the freedom doesn't come in like having new different beings, right, who are going to populate this differently. It actually comes from here. And things change quickly, as you notice. You know, it can go from that sense of blast of metta to the 
uh, hell realms of all kinds of difficult judgment and uh, resentment, even of the one who you loved one second ago, like just like that. So the Buddha also said, uh, there's no other thing do I know that changes as quickly as the mind. The Buddha was like a master of metaphors. And he even said, it's not easy to give a metaphor for how quickly the mind changes. (laughs) (laughs) So that says something about it. So if you find that's happening, that just means you're human. Like that's, that's normal, like that too. I remember when I started doing this practice in earnest, um, for one period I was in uh, Sri Lanka and I was doing a lot of meditation practice and then as I said I was working in this uh, village and uh, my relatives didn't really understand what I was up to so they kind of didn't really want me to be doing this. I just graduated from college, uh, I went to Harvard, I had a seemingly promising future and then I was going off to breathe in the <laughs> uh, jungles and stay in this village, you had to pull water from a bucket, you know. I live in America with air conditioning. It seemed like some steps backwards, you know. To so I remember one uncle would, um, he would pick me up from the bus, you know, when I'd take the bus back from these places. Um, and he would always, like, start to lecture me, to give me, like, lecture on what I should be doing with my life. And, uh, and I'd usually get into some fight with him about it. And then, you know, at some point I realized, like, oh, this is not actually what the, you know, the Buddha would probably not recommend this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So I was a very sincere practitioner. So then I try to look up, like, well, what would the Buddha say about this? And Buddha had a high bar for practitioners. So there's one famous sutta in which he's telling his uh, his uh, monastics encouragement to maintain a heart of goodwill uh, towards those who speak badly to you, maintain a heart of goodwill to those who mistreat you, and he even goes so far as to say. Uh, practitioners, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, those among you who let their heart get angered, even at that, would not be following my teaching. (laughs) Even thus, you should train yourself. Our hearts will be unaffected, and we will say no evil words. We will try to remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill and with no hatred. We will keep pervading towards these people an awareness imbued with goodwill, and we will keep pervading, starting from there, an all-encompassing word, world with an awareness imbued with goodwill, metta, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, and free from ill will. That is how you should train yourself. So yes, this is a high bar, but I decided, okay, I'm going to go for it. So I memorized this passage. I don't don't have it memorized anymore, you can see, but I memorized this passage, and then next time my uncle picked me up in the car, he started giving me a lecture, and I started repeating this passage to myself, right? Right. Like, yeah, even if, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely with uh, <laughs> like this, right? And uh, very interestingly, like, uh, he kept talking and talking and talking. And then at a certain point, he stopped and he said, um, am I annoying you? <laughs> Which he never actually asked or cared about before. So even, even the lack of reactivity, you know, that usually I would be like, no, but, you know. The lack of reactivity just totally shifted the, our dynamic in that. And... Uh, it also just made me laugh because, uh, you know, he was lecturing me, but he wasn't actually trying to saw me limb from limb. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, okay, this, this is much easier than uh, what the Buddha is describing. So I can try a little, you know, aim a little bit more like this. So, 
So also it's good to have a sense of humor, you know, with this practice. Have a sense of humor with your mind and uh, all the antics that it's up to. And a nice thing with this practice also is that you can be very creative with it. So as John mentioned, like sometimes that in between the uh, periods, like he had a little meta song going like that, you know. So if that comes naturally to you and if you can stay primarily with the Uh, cultivation of the metta, but if the song helps you to do that, then uh, that's good. You know, stay with that. If it's feeling kind of dry at some point and you find like, oh, sitting in nature like helps you to connect with a sense of goodwill, then great. Like allow yourself to do that. Uh, Allow yourself to remember your own good qualities and remember the good qualities of others. Uh, you could allow yourself to remember uh, like acts of generosity and kindness that have happened to you. Also, for those of you who, uh, for whom English is not your native language, even though we're giving the instructions in English, um, you could see what it's like if you translate the phrases uh, into what is your heart language. So sometimes this doesn't work, but sometimes it is helpful. Like, what's the language that... Uh, You know, when you were very small, if you ever had anyone uh, say something nice to you or put you to sleep nicely, like what was that that language that was used? So sometimes there's some way in which speaking that language to yourself, the phrases in that way, uh, can really go directly to the heart in the way that, uh, yeah, the way the phrases are in English can feel like a little academic sometimes. So it's fine to play with it that way and see what works. Also, some people have asked, you know, sometimes uh, the metta becomes very strong and it feels like the phrases are extra. You know, at that point, it feels like it's almost intrusive and um, interrupting to be using these words. So, yeah, if that happens and if it feels strong, then you can actually let go of the words for some time or let go of the whole phrase, but just drop in, you know, very gently one word now and then, happy, healthy, safe, something like that. So it's kind of like if in the beginning you're trying to like row a boat, you know, to get going and then after a while it's going and yeah, every now and then you just put a little paddle in, you know, keep going. But also keep an eye on whether the concentration, the collectedness starts to dissolve, you know. So sometimes uh, it'll be like that for a little while, but then, yeah, monkey mind will wake up a little bit, start to chase squirrels, this and that. Okay, then come back, pay attention and then start up again with the phrases, right? So there's both kind of an art to this and this art can be very heartfelt and then, you know, we're using kind of the techniques and uh, the practice uh, in this kind of codified way. And each of us learns the way, you know, on the path ourselves. So that's part of the beauty of having this length of time to practice, to explore all the territory of the heart. So I had mentioned something about this loyalty and, and to me something about the loyalty is related to supporting the collectedness of mind. So the stability of mind and attention. So notice if you feel like you're getting bored with your metta subject or you know, getting bored with walking or something like that. And here again, we want to cultivate this, this sense of the unconditional goodwill. So goodwill, even when it's boring. So that means, yes, go and do the walking. 
even if part of your mind is like, eh, that's no, eh, that's no fun, walking back and forth. I'm going to go hiking instead, you know. Sometimes it's okay to do that, but for the sake of keeping your practice simple, uh, like when you're just walking back and forth in a fairly uh, predictable area, you don't have to worry about like, where am I stepping? What direction am I going? Any of that. So all of that energy can go to developing the metta, to the collectedness of attention. So that's really why, you know, keeping the continuity is helpful. Also, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, when we we have this sense of of goodwill or unconditional love, the idea is that can we be with this person? Can we have this sense of kindness regardless of what that other is delivering back to us? So that's a strength. You know, that's a real power and strength. So that means if that person is exciting, if that person is boring, if that person throws up, if that person starts to get cranky. So real metta, the power of metta is like, can we maintain even just goodwill towards that being, regardless of what they're dishing out to? And that means even in our own mind. So yeah, can we continue even when it seems like there's not much there? Can we not abandon then? Can we be a good friend, like a steady friend, even when there's not much going on. And you can think about a good friend that you might have who might be with you when things are exciting. You could celebrate your success with them. Also, if something difficult happens, you could call them and they would be there with you. But with good friends, also, there's a way in which you can hang out and kind of do nothing, like nothing special. And that still is okay. And there's a sense of connection, of kindness, of goodwill. So we're practicing this in some way. You know, we're practicing not abandoning uh, ourselves, our practice, uh, and this supports the dedication of uh, cultivating metta. So once I was uh, walking in my neighborhood in San Francisco and there's some graffiti on the ground and said, your love is all I think about. And for some reason, it, it took me a, a, like a back. Like I was like, "Who wrote that?" Right? Like, your love is all I think of. What is that? And in that form, it may sound like sort of a pop song line. But if you take away the "your," so what if love is all you think about? So that's your journey here. That's your creative, beautiful job for this next four or five days. I close with a, a quote from the augury of Barham Gur, who was an Iranian king in the 6th century. So I went to an art exhibit there in the uh, Sackler Museum, and one of the uh, pictures, they had this uh, caption, and it said, Let there be good news to you that the door of victory and success has been opened to you. Even in reading that, I felt like, wow, that's very inspiring. That's great. And this is true. You, know, you have stepped onto the path. You've undertaken a courageous activity here for this week. So I feel I can tell you, let there be good news to you. The door of victory and success has been opened to you. And even though as you walk through, there may be twists and turns and ups and downs, you're on the right path, my friends.
So thank you for your practice. Please continue. So you can let go of the words. Come back to your heart. Come back to the sense of your body sitting here. And appreciate again our opportunity to continue in our retreat, in our practice, and all of the conditions that support that. We can appreciate that we're still here through all of the love and tears and boredom and brokenheartedness everything that's come up. May we all know a true liberation of mind and heart for our own benefit and the benefit of all we encounter from this day forward. So have a period for your pilgrimage of walking love, and then we'll come back for the last sitting with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.